We're going to use the same logic that we did uh, at the very outset of this series. We're going to more deeply examine Paul's teachings in Philippians 2, 1 through 3, by looking at Jesus's prayer for unity in John 17. And you might remember we did something very similar when it came to a promise that Paul was living in, uh, a promise that Jesus had given. So when we talked about peace, how Paul could, in a very trying uh, season of his life, that's the premise of this series, how is it that we can have an unassailable joy, no matter what is going on in life? Obviously, in the Christian world, we believe that that is tethered to the hope that we have in Jesus. And Jesus gives us a pretty amazing promise in the Gospel of John about peace. So you're literally seeing, several years after Jesus says something that is true, it having a deep and significant and lasting effect on some of his, uh, on his followers' lives, in this case, Paul. And that followership is what we're all trying to do when it comes to Jesus, right? So those promises are available to us also. So we talked about how peace originates from Jesus, and it's fleshed out in the life of a guy who's in a circumstance that really affords him none. So last week, we introduced Jesus's prayer, this John 17 verse, uh, and I kind of quickly talked through it as a bit of a precursor for what I want to do today. Today, I actually want to look at it and study it a little more deeply because it gives us a unique opportunity to connect the dots regarding why Paul is able to do this, why, why Paul is in the middle of a jail cell talking to us about unity. This is so important to him that he connects this back to Jesus. There's a substance behind what Jesus says that we need to grasp. But it's also one of the unique places in Scripture where we get to eavesdrop a prayer conversation between Jesus and his Father in Heaven. Think about that. This section in John is really, uh, it's, th it's the recorded words of how Jesus is talking to his Father. And so there's some amazing insight here just in the ability we have to observe Christ's prayer life. So this is his, his literal last petition. He, it is the night before his death, and he's about to go to the cross. And in this time that he has with God, as he's uttering his last words, right? We talked about this last week, the importance of last words. He prays that God would create a unity and love in the hearts of his followers so real that it becomes an evidence to the world that Jesus is real. And it's what could be noted as an otherworldly love rooted in the perfect love that God and Jesus share with each other. And this is true of most of the kingdom ideals that we try to live. These are otherworldly values that are they're brought down from heaven and made to be fleshed out amongst God's people. So when it comes to this type of attitude, while we might see it on earth, what, what we're reading about here is truly the way it is supposed to be. And so Jesus gives us some important teaching on this. This is a heavenly love that is meant to be fleshed out on earth in us. And whenever we deal with principles like this, ideas like this, it's important to recognize that our adherence to them, and by adherence I don't simply mean in a legalistic sense, I mean to own these in the heart where they shape what we do. What you and I are doing, wherever we, wherever we are faithful to Jesus in an area like this, love and unity, you are literally shards of light breaking God's kingdom into the earth that we live on. So where you go and the light of Jesus goes with you, you are now representing our God and his kingdom. You are the, the, the forerunner, the pace car, if you will, of what God wants relationship to look like on earth. And this love is so significant that when it is lived out in proper community, Jesus tells us, and Paul will continue to tell us, that it has the power to draw others to God. This is one of the ways that God uses us to help people see his grace and want to experience it more deeply. So this kind of love and unity is what Paul commands us to strive for. That's what we talked about last week. We were literally told to, at all costs, guard this type of heart attitude in the church. In chapters, uh, chapter 127 through 30, he introduces the idea 
In chapter 2, 1 through 3, he reaffirms the idea. That's why we're looking at Jesus' words. And then in the weeks that come, he's going to use Jesus' life to show us how the idea should actually look. And that's why this section is kind of under this idea of a life that is walking worthy of Jesus. It is the foundation of the kind of humble life Paul will further command us to live out in Philippians chapter 2. And he literally uses Jesus' life as the example. And this great hymn, which we'll talk about next week in Philippians chapter 2, describing the life and attributes of Christ. And so that's why we're going to do this this way. We're going to study this prayer that Jesus gives to us, or prays for us, so that we can make sure that this heart attitude is present in our lives. We look at the Gospel of John first, and then the particular attributes it produces next week. And those, the, the big rocks in the jar there, I'll just tell you them now, humility and selflessness. These are kind of the alpha marks of one who follows Jesus. And doing it this way allows us to make sure we don't ever cross wires on an incredibly important theological reality. In the Western world, we are accustomed to being told what to do to fix problems. We want to-do lists. Most of the blogs we read are three ways to fix something, uh, whatever that is. Stuff as significant as, you know, like how to deal with problems in your marriage and uh, issues in the workplace. Everything is kind of a three-point formula. But what we're going to see here is that before we get to the formula, we can very easily list out the things we should be doing. But we make a real problem as Christians if we disconnect that to our identity in Jesus, which is what we're going to talk about today. Because in the Christian faith, who you are in Jesus, which is what these words Jesus communicates to us, teach us, that shapes what you do for Jesus. And I would submit to you pretty strongly that if you get to the doing part before the being part, things like humility and selflessness, they do not come that easy. They're never easy even with Jesus, but they're a lot harder to bring about in your life and certainly much harder to to continue to practice when you disconnect it from the ultimate source of all humility and selflessness, Jesus. This is the first step that we want to talk about today. The first step in having a love and unity in our lives like this is recognizing a very simple but profound truth. Jesus' otherworldly love, I'd like to refer to it as that this morning, this, this uncommon unity, Jesus' otherworldly love can only be found when you and I learn to live for the we and not just the me. Those are the pronouns we're going to kick back and forth this morning. So John 17, 20 through 21, let me reread this, at least a portion of it. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. That's us, the disciples here in the church for all of eternity. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And that is literally us, right? We're not in this room with Jesus, but we're now uh, believers. At least some of us are of this message. He says that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So you've got this me, you, us, we, I, I and you, you and me. You have what we talked about last week, this incredible diversity of people that are all commonly bound by a unity in the Lord Jesus. And what's important about what we're reading here is Jesus's language is very clear. And it is really attacking what I like to call me-based Christianity. Now, this teaching flies directly in the face of a popular brand of Christianity that I think is adamantly hurting Jesus' name in North America. It's what could more commonly be known as, as this privatized Christianity. A Christianity that emphasizes God and me alone at the expense of God and us together. It's the kind of faith that says my relationship with God is solely a personal one. And it's really no business of yours what I do with God, how I live my life for him, or how I love others. It says... When I signed up for Christianity, it was to get God. And we would say that's wonderful because we say one of the greatest blessings of, the, of the, the gospel is that you get God. That is the greatest reward. You get the eternal presence of Jesus. But if you put a period at the end of that, what happens is somebody starts to say, I am glad that I get God, but I do not want any of you. That's all of you out here and me up here, right? 
So there's a challenge with this because what happens is, is a person who is all about the me and the faith, they get to this place where if they value any of the disciplines of the Christian faith, they will tend to say something like, I am going to consider myself a person who follows Jesus well. If I get a message on weekends, an inspirational message on weekends, maybe I'll even stream that. I don't even need people. Uh, and I get my privacy during the week. We'll be friends in Jesus so long as you don't cross any of those lines I've put out before you. Uh, this brand of Christianity is a convenient one because think about this. This is true of most of the places where there is a lack of ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is simply the word that describes the doctrines or the belief of the church. God says a lot about the way the church conducts itself. And so what happens here is a person is given all of the perceived benefits of a relationship with God, right? They get to consume him at immeasurable rates without any of the unnecessary baggage of having to be in any kind of an accountable relationship with another Christian. You receive Jesus' sacrifice for you rather conveniently without having to sacrifice for the sake of others. And at that point, we already have a wire that is crossed in the Christian faith. There's no cost associated with keeping the command of actually having to display the very grace that you love from Jesus to others. And so privatized Christianity, it is a modern spirit of the age that many people have adopted and called Christianity. Every epoch of the church has, has, has had its issues that it deals with, and this is one of the big ones that we are dealing with today. And the real problem here is that it really isn't Christianity. It might, uh, as Paul would say, might have a form of godliness connected to it, but it's not necessarily uh, rooted in the ways and the lordship of Jesus. And therefore, it isn't truly or even entirely at sometimes Christianity. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If I could paraphrase his words, he's saying something like, while privatizing your life and faith is popular in a highly individualistic culture like ours, we're going to talk about this next week. We live in a part of the world where they say, to find out who you really are, you have to abandon every relationship in life. You essentially have to leave everything you know and, and walk down the road of individualism. This is why we push towards this type of philosophy here. And it is healthy to a certain degree. But the interesting thing about the Christian faith is that nowhere will you find any place where Jesus says to truly find yourself, you must leave other people behind and find yourself in you. The premise of the Christian faith is you've got to find yourself and I have to find myself in him. And so the privatization of Christianity, while popular, is problematic. It is detrimental to a functioning and vibrant relationship with God. And it is worth noting in this passage, all of the areas of Christianity that Jesus has prayed for us to grow in are all brought about by being in community with other people, with other believers, who are unified in their love for God and each other, not isolation from others. He doesn't pray, God, help them on their own to figure this thing out and to be great for me. He says, God, help them and me and you and me and I and them and them and each other. All plural ideas. Now, just look at how Jesus describes the way a Christian is supposed to live out their faith. My prayer is not for them alone. It's for them to be in me and me and them and for them to be one with each other. And think about other passages like these iconic teachings that we refer to when we are truly trying to find the heart of God. In the Lord's Prayer, right, he instructs us to pray our Father in heaven. Not just my Father in heaven, although he absolutely is your Father in heaven. The idea behind that is that there is a plurality to the, to the corporate voice of God's people praying for this. And I would say that especially in the Lord's Prayer or the Beatitudes, which we briefly touched on last week, the ability to press into those things. They are, they are radically different understandings of how to relate to people. It is going to be more uh, probable, if you will, 
that you will not only press into countercultural behaviors like grace and forgiveness where it is not due, love and affection where it is not deserved. It is going to be more likely that you will press into those things with the power of God and complete them by the accountability of God's people all trying to wrestle with this together if you actually see your faith as something plural. In verse 20, he prays way beyond the disciples. He prays for the future of the church, for those who would believe in the months, years, and centuries, and millennia to come. And that's us right here. He says, my prayer is that they, the universal church, those who are in Jesus, all the saints, past, present, and future, that they would be unified in their love for me and each other. And if you ever wonder why, if you've been with us for a communion, we do that once a month, we affirm the Apostles' Creed here. And uh, one of the things that we affirm is that we, plural, are Christ's holy Christian church. Holy because he has made us holy, not holy because we've done anything. And the importance of a statement like that is that it is a de- it's a declaration. It's referring to all followers of Jesus, past, present, and future. It's talking about the church family, global and eternal. And Jesus is praying for this. This is what he's praying for. That's why we affirm it. It is one of the essential tenets of what it means to be the Christian, of which that family, eternal, past, present, and future, it's punctilia right now, meaning it's, this is our moment in history in it. And, but who knows where your life will be in 10 years? That's the beauty of this, is that if you up and move to you know, Wisconsin or some other place around the country, there are people there loving God. So the family is eternal, and there's no boundary to it. And that's why we're a part of it, capital church C and lowercase church C here. So when you think about this, it's kind of moving, at least I think it is, because it says that Jesus died so that we could have this eternal relationship with all believers. And just think about the radically different understanding of me-based Christianity. Part of what makes heaven heaven, right? We talk about heaven as far as us being in this eternal presence with God and suffering and pain fall away, sin is no more. The whole suffering thing we talked about for five weeks, all of the the challenges of life, Paul wrestling with life or death, heaven, when we are permanently with Jesus, that stuff is gone. But I want, you, I want you to know that part of what heaven is, is while we are permanently with Jesus, we are also permanently present with each other. Part of what makes heaven, heaven, is the fact that we will be with each other for all eternity with Jesus. And as we say, the light of God's kingdom is meant to break in everything we're doing here on earth. So to create a disconnect between what heaven is supposed to be like on earth, that's the purpose of what it means to be a believer, to kind of mirror reflect these things, creates an imbalance. And so I guess I just want to say, while, while privatized Christianity has become super popular in our culture, it is not popular with God at all, because it's an incredible threat to a lot of things. And when you read a prayer like Jesus's, and you observe a life like Paul's, the biggest threat is that it, it attacks the love and the unity he prays for us to have here. And so as I say normally, logically and theologically, we cannot be unified in our love for each other while practicing a private Christianity only concerned with the me. I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned with the me. I'm just saying if that's all you're concerned with, there's an issue. And this is why in verse 21, Jesus prays that we would love each other in the same way he and his father love each other. And in a very different way, there are lots of places where Jesus and other writers in Scripture lay out the... Uh, the relational rules of engagement for the way a Christian should carry themselves. What he says here is that our relationships with each other are to be patterned after his relationship with his father. And if you read the scripture, which I hope you do, um, this is a direct reference to something we touched very lightly on last week. Jesus is referring to what we know in, in the Christian world as the Holy Trinity. He's talking about God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he's saying this is the contact point. If you need a reference for the way we're supposed to treat each other, he says this is it. 
So in the Trinity, we see that there is one God who exists in three very diverse persons, and there are three very diverse persons who exist as one God. God the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when you begin to read about the nature of their relationship over time in Scripture, what you find is that they have a very deep love for each other, they have an indivisible love for each other, they have a very unified love for each other. And I know those are all like technical terms, but the way this fleshes out at the end of the day is that for all of eternity, they have just simply loved to be in each other's presence. They have longed to be with each other. It's a relationship rooted in humble love and mutual submission. And this is why Jesus coming to the earth to die for our sins is such a, uh, a cataclysmic reality. Because when we talk about Jesus sacrificing, this is the exact opposite life. He lives for the we above the me. He starts trading this stuff. It doesn't benefit him or prosper him at all to leave the pleasance of heaven to come down and be subjected to the trials and eventually death that we receive here on earth. I mean, the we and the me is, is rooted in Jesus, and we'll press into that here in a moment. The, the three are all individuals, each with a different role, and I would say a different responsibility. They are all doing different things to bring about God's kingdom. Yet as diverse as they are, they are one in all ways, unified in their love for each other, and perhaps something that is neglected when we talk about teachings like this, they are unified in the cause of the mission of redemption. They're not just there to love each other. This is when Christian community goes bad, right? It's not just to love each other. Their love is meant to be contagious. It's meant to be spread. So unified in their care for each other, but also in the common goal of helping others to sense and to experience in the person of Jesus this care, redemption. So in the Trinity, we have a rich example of unity and diversity in God's kingdom. And Jesus calls us, as Paul did last week, to strive for the same type of love and devotion towards each other. And this is why it's a myriad of examples, but the, one of the best descriptions we have of, uh, in Scripture of the church family is that we're referenced as one body with many members, all living for the common goal of honoring Jesus. And, you know, I've said this before, but you can think about a teaching like that from the angle of your body. There's a lot of stuff going on in you right now, all kinds of stuff. If you're like me, your cholesterol's high, so I'm not so good stuff at times, right? But all of this stuff is happening so that your body keeps you vibrant, alive, and healthy. All the invisible rhythms are there to make the body do what the body is supposed to do. In our case, live. Common goal of honoring Jesus, based in selflessness and humility. And so living like this, uh, it, it can be hard and selfless work. But I just want to say that it's worth it, uh, one, because Jesus said it, but also there's some, there's some true gospel benefit to it. It's worth it because it will truly deepen your understanding of how Jesus loves you. There are just certain relationships on earth that are meant to we're meant to live in them for a number of reasons. But when it comes to this relationship, marriage, raising children, these things expose us to the way God loves us in very, very pointed ways. And it is fair to say striving for a selfless love like this is going to be a bit unnatural. And for some people, entirely unnatural in a fallen world. Because in a fallen world, we still wrestle with sin. And while that word sin is kind of like grandiose and cosmic, at the root of all sin is one particular word, disunity. It is, it's the, the origin of sin in our world is it revolves around a, a broken relationship. So think about this. Uh, the root of the first sin is that we choose to trade the perfect oneness that we have with God in the garden. We trade unity and perfection in him for conflict, disaccord, and frankly, if I can say it, rampant individualism. I'm going to do what I think is best for me, even though you have created me. And I know you know what is actually best for me. That's the me at the expense of the we. 
The sin of individualism is why Jesus prays for God to give us unity. And the events in the garden show us, and please hear me, I'm not like throwing Adam under the bus. We're all kind of up in that tire well right now. The events in the garden show us that when people are given the choice between corporate love and unity, between corporate love and an individual satisfaction, a great many will choose the me over the we. That is the natural inclination of the human heart. And so when Adam does it, it immediately breaks his relationship with God. It fractures unity. It causes disunity. And then there's no bound to the way that that actually affects his other relationships. Immediately, him and his wife start fighting, right? They start having problems following after that. So, uh, and for some of us, we don't even need to have committed the original sin to have arguments with our spouses. This stuff happens. Any of the primary relationships you have, there are times when there is conflict and discord in it. That's one of the realities of what it means to be human. And we see the origin of that in this deep division in the first human relationship that, that Adam and Eve share with each other. And so this episode, it is the root of all human conflict today. Even mature Christians are prone to wander in this area. It is more natural for us to want to defend than it is oftentimes to want to preserve uh, peace. And that's why in Jesus' grace, we didn't even read this today, but this section in John 17, Jesus' last words, he is, it's worth noting that in one breath, he, he prays for and predicts. He says the church is going to grow. And then immediately as he says that, or after he says that, he immediately prays for us to be unified while it is happening. Because he knew that as relationships grow, so does the ability for conflict to develop. We'll talk a little bit about conflict next week. Now, I want to share a quote with you from Tim Chester and Steve, Stim, uh, excuse me, Steve Timmis uh, from a book called Total Church. This was written by some guys in our, um, our missional network, and it's a, it's a book well worth reading because it describes the essential elements uh, of a New Testament church that actually make it a New Testament church, thus the concept of total church, the, the things that make the church God-honoring. And in a chapter dealing with the challenges of cre- I see you guys reading. Don't do it yet. <laughs> in a, Omar, you're in trouble, man, for putting this up too early. In a chapter, see, discord, unity, strife, that's where I'm at right now. Right? So... <clears throat> In a, in a chapter dealing with the challenges of creating true Christ-centered community and unity and culture obsessed with privatizing religion and individualism, they wrote this. By becoming a Christian, I belong to God, and I belong to my brothers and sisters. It is not just that I belong to God and then make a decision to join a local church or in our vernacular to become a gospel partner with a local church. They say, my being in Christ also means being in Christ with all others who are in Christ. This is my identity. This is our identity, me and we. To fail to live out our corporate identity in Christ is analogous to the act of adultery. This is, I think, the most profound statement in this whole quote. They say we can be Christian and do it. This happens all the time. It's not that once you're a Christian, you can't do this. It's very normal for people to become Christians and then do this. But the operative statement here that we need to focus on is what they say next. But it is not what Christians should do. You can, but you should not. The loyalties of the new community forged at the foot of the cross. Jesus dies to bind us together. The loyalties of the new community supersede even the loyalties of biology. And I'll give you a good example of this at the end of this talk. If the church is the body of Christ, then we should not live as disembodied Christians. And that does not just mean simply being here on Sundays, corporate gatherings, a big deal. But it means that we function as God's family in this place and outside of this place. And the reason we should be willing to strive for love and unity in the church is because Jesus connects a very deep significance to it. He says our love for unity for each other was meant to be a direct reflection of God's love for Jesus. And this very same love that God shows us through Jesus is now meant to be passed on to others. 
You'll be hard-pressed to find God's blessing or favor upon a local church body where this type of love is lacking, because that's not something that God wants to reproduce. I said this last week. I'll say it again. I am thankful that it is here. This is not an offhanded talk to address an issue. This is more a very pointed talk to give thanks for unity and a peace that is here and a general caution for us to be aware of the fact that that is something worth striving for, protecting and maintaining, as Paul says. I'm thankful it is not lacking here. This is why Jesus intimately connects us, uh, connects our love for each other to the future health and growth of his church. It's one of the ways that God's kingdom moves forward. And this leads me to the second truth that he lays out in this passage for us. So first is recognizing we have to have a balance between the me and the we, and we have to recognize while God loves us, I say this a lot, he doesn't only love us, and that should be displayed in our lives. Second thing I want to share with you this morning is that God's plan is to use our otherworldly love for each other to lead an unbelieving world to him. So the rays of light that, of light that break down from heaven and are, are kind of illustrated in our lives, they're meant to be used, God wants to use them to draw the people to him. John 17, 22 through 23, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. We'll talk about this in a moment. We are given his glory to be one. I and them and you and me, he says, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, the way we display this kind of Christ-centered love that Jesus is talking about here, it will either empower or cripple our ability to accomplish God's mission. And if you were with us in the first year of restoration, um, you'll remember this story. As I say regularly, I'm sure you remember every single thing I say here every Sunday. But the most pointed example I have of this, I'd like to share share it with you. Um, In my very early years of ministry... Um, I was I was once asked to moderate a church business meeting. And if you've been in different churches, different cultures, some churches have monthly or quarterly or annual meetings, whatever it is. But I was asked to moderate a, ch- a monthly church business meeting. And uh, church business meetings are the way a church conducts its affairs. This is often a good way to seriously see how much people have believed these teachings and are obeying them. How do we get along in all areas of life, right? For some churches, they are largely uneventful and very healthy, and some churches, they are not. I mean, what Jesus is saying here is very true. Some people will embrace this and strive for it. Others will fall away from it. That's why we have these teachings. So the meeting I moderated, it fell into the latter category, and somewhat ironically, it it took place right after worship on a Sunday. So I want you to think about this, so we contextualize this. Think about our service being over and us not having, like, get out of here because bad grandpa nine is being played in theater 11 right after church right we actually can stay here pray for that one day we're going to be here and then what winds up happening is is after church we get together and we have to talk about some pretty important issues and on the agenda were very minor issues things that really did not matter they were just super small things but like five minutes into it they became really major issues for a handful of people when they came up and the meeting immediately started to get incredibly nasty and I don't think anybody would ever want this. I don't think this was purposeful. But, but what it turned into was a problem. It devolved into groups of people arguing and at times yelling at each other. And it was clear that what just looked like very minor issues, connected, they were connected to very deep divisions in the body that developed over decades. And so midway through the meeting, I'm the moderator, right? I'm the guy that is supposed to keep this in order. Um, I start feeling like I need a whistle to referee. And it gets so bad. I mean, I was kind of like, I wasn't saying anything, which if you know me is not normal because you have to like duct tape my mouth. I like to talk so much. I'm, I'm sitting here silent because I don't know what to do. And eventually I feel like, well, I've got to do something because doing nothing here is not acceptable. And so I get on the you know, microphone and um, I just say, hey, I'd like your attention for a moment. And everybody kind of calms down for a second. And I tell people very firmly, but rather graciously, 
that I'm going to call the meeting to end because it's got to a place uh, that is no longer honoring Jesus. And, you know, this is like year five for me in, in pastoral ministry. And so I think what's supposed to happen when I say that is people hear like Moses's voice and then everybody just stops and obeys and everybody's good to go. And like, oh, the pastor said we should stop fighting. So we'll do. And I thought that was what would happen. But that's actually not what happened at all. Um, it wasn't well received at all. I, I, the, the exact opposite happened because I no sooner said that when a guy from the back of the room got up and he yelled out, uh, he called me pastor, which none of you really do that here, which it doesn't bother me. I prefer to be called Anthony. Uh, but he called me this not in a good way. Uh, he yelled out and he said, pastor, you're a moderator. And he pulled out a book and he said, according to Robert's Rules of Order, which is the governing book that most companies and churches use to moderate business meetings. He said, you don't have the authority to shut a meeting down like this. So you just can't. And then he sat down, put his book down. And they all just started yelling again. And so... So I didn't know what to do. I was like going to put an application at a Wendy's or something and look for a different career. But, but I sat here thinking like this can't happen. And in my heart, I have shared with you before, um, you know, the thorn of my side is anger. It's the only conflict resolution tool I was trained to use for the first 25 years of my life. Um, I've joked and said my dad taught us two ways to deal with problems, get mad or get really mad. Those are your two options. And so in me comes up what we're trying to avoid here. That response caused a real pastoral dilemma for me because I, I was sitting there thinking what, I could, what should I do. And what I wanted to do was take the big wood podium I had and I wanted to throw it in the back of the room and, and just like get out of the room. But I remembered in seminary I was taught you can throw podiums at business meetings but never at people. That is a line of demarcation there, right? So I, I sit down and I'm trying to pray and I'm trying to collect myself. Nobody's even observing this. They're just all screaming, yelling. And I just stopped. And in God's grace, he gave me something to say. And I tapped on the mic again and I said, listen, I know Robert's rules of order are important and we function by them. But um, I need you guys to know that they are subordinate to Jesus's words of order. And in the scripture, until that, that's we read about this, right? Until we get those words in order, this meeting's over. I'm not, just not conducting it anymore. And something happened there, likely because I felt like God put that on my heart. He used that. And that actually did quiet the room, and the meeting abruptly ended. And what was ironic was, if you talk to most people about this after that, they were somewhat embarrassed by that behavior. It was almost like the spirit of divisiveness ran, ran, ran wild in a room of people that claimed to love God, and many of them regretted it. And so um, complicating matters, and perhaps what is the point of this, is that I immediately saw two people uh, stand up, and they started walking out after the meeting was called. And what stood out to me about them was that I had just met them an hour prior in a worship service just like this, and that was the first time they had come to our church. And they came to the meeting because they did not know what a meeting like this was like, and they wanted to see what it was, and they just didn't come back. And so not surprisingly, we didn't see them again, and I'm not sure that you could blame them. You think about this. We live in a world where the dysfunctional family um, and dysfunctional relationships are getting pretty normative. And so who, who wouldn't want to get up early on a Sunday morning and miss all your football games to volitionally become a part of another one? Or who would want to, um, in an effort of, of talking about unity, in an effort of serving Jesus, who would, who would be attracted to that? I'm not sure anybody would. There's already a great enough cost of, to following Jesus that we have to swallow. But to then layer on some of these problematic hard attitudes, it, it starts to put a, a very big pill in a person's mouth that they were never meant to swallow. And so if you do some research into why churches go bad or split, you can almost guarantee at the root of it will be some violation of Jesus' teaching here uh, and the violation of Paul's command. The blow-up can be linked to an abusive church government or congregants practicing a divisive agenda-driven me, Christi uh, agenda me Christianity, or oftentimes both are present. There's no longer a call for unity. There's a call for self-preservation. And these are two definite nails in the coffin for a church. They're also smaller nails in the way that we relate to each other, which will be next week. 
We'll talk about how this actually has a practical effect on you know, how you deal with somebody on a Tuesday. They are problems that really affect the way people understand who Jesus is. And they show us, if for nothing less for this talk today, that the way we carry ourselves with each other in this place, or you know, Friday night, a bunch of us went to hooligans and had wings. It was kind of encouraging to see um, to just see genuine Christian unity. It was really fun to just eat wings with people and, and feel like that was ministry that night, and it was. And so that presents an image to people, good or bad. And all I want to say here is that how we, how we treat each other, whether it's in this room or in our private relationships and our CGs as we're serving the community, um, it really does affect how people see Jesus out there. And so consider how Paul describes this truth in Ephesians 4.16. He says the body will grow, no shortage of books on church growth strategy, but the primary thing that Paul says the church will grow on is when it builds itself up in love. So the, the foundation of the kind of a church that Jesus wants to use for his glory and the good of our neighbor is a church that is unified in, in its love for him and each other. So we'll kind of wrap up with this. To help us steer clear of these anti-unity attitudes, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a tool. He says, I'm going to give you something. It's called my glory, the same glory that my father gave me. That's what I'm going to give you. He's going to give us the same glory his father has given him. Now, glory, there's whole sermons on this, so I won't belabor this, but uh, the word glory is used a lot in the Bible and certainly in John's gospel. But in this chapter, uh, Jesus is speaking about a very particular kind of glory. There, there is a clear, tangible expression of the kind of glory he is giving us. And it has nothing to do with power. The glory he's talking about here, remember, this is the night before his crucifixion. It's the glory of the cross. It's the glory of his resurrection. That's the glory he says, I'm going to give you and me to be able to live lives unified in him and for each other. So there's a deep irony in this supreme glory, one that we touched on last week and we'll drive home now. Because if we're being honest, there isn't anything supreme or glorious about God, the creator of heaven and earth, allowing his fallen, uh, powerless creation to nail him to a tree. That is not glorious by the world's standards. We talked about that last week. This is why in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us the cross is literal foolishness to, to an unbelieving world. And think about your life before Jesus. It just seemed like a silly antic to me. I don't know where you were. But everyone, right, watching this event unfold, even his followers at that point, were wondering how God was going to bring anything good out of this. That's the point of the first part of this teaching in Philippians. God is always able to bring good, even out of the worst of circumstances. Yet in the irony of the supreme glory of the cross, we see where the true power of Christian love and unity comes from. And it really has nothing to do with what you and I can do. There's something we must do, but the origin and the root of it is not rooted in something we can do. Because the glory of the cross is the antithesis of privatized Christianity. Its glory isn't built on the preservation of self. Jesus' act and deed is not built on personal accolade. It's not built on him acquiring power. Rather, it's built on Jesus' otherworldly love. What he does on the cross is the greatest glimpse of light we get of the way God wants it to be. It is a supreme glory spoken to the world in a very lowly tongue. It's the place where God lays his power down and clothes himself in lowly robes of humility, obedience, sacrificial service, and extreme generosity. And he does all of this for the glory of his God, to bring fame to his Father in heaven and for the good of his neighbor, for you and me. That sacrifice pleases God, but it shapes our lives in the sense that we can now, when we follow it and pursue it and trust in it, we can now be sons of God, daughters of God. John teaches us when God becomes flesh, right? This is usually around Christmas time, but we just got over Easter. We'll do a little sandwich talk here. John teaches us when God becomes flesh, his glory, he says, dwells among us. There's these blurry lines. God leaves heaven 
and he comes to earth, and he's, he, this is glory. This is what we're told. But it's not a glory in the traditional power-hungry way that kings presented themselves to the world. It's in a selfless way that makes no sense to the world. And Jesus' glory on the cross shows us that, that he's willing to leave this perfect love of his Father in heaven and enter a world that often takes advantage of him, rejects him, and eventually crucifies him. All because, think about this. If you need one motiva- motivation, let it be this. He does not do this for the me. There is nothing he gets out of what he does for us. But he does it because of the we. He loves his Father in heaven. He will send his Spirit to us on earth. And all three of them, in both unified and diverse ways, they love us. And so they do this for us. We are here because the we matters to God. And this is the ironic glory Jesus is talking about here. It is a glory saturated in selfless living and obedience. It erupts in a work of love so magnificent that it draws men and women like you and me to God. And so when you see love like this, it has the ability to turn hard hearts towards, uh, towards uh, hard hearts that are maybe really antagonistic towards God. God is able to bring some softness to that. God is able to turn unbelief into belief through that. And for many of us, that otherworldly love is what did it. We all have the things that kept us from following Jesus in our lives. Some was academic, philosophical, religious. But for a great many people, what starts happening is, is those objections they're, they're a little less pointed when Jesus begins to melt them away through love. When the glory of the cross and the love of God's people penetrate the depths of our hearts. We, we now balance the objections with the reality of what Jesus says here. There's an evidence, a different kind of evidence that we start seeing. And this is why Jesus sets us apart to share this otherworldly love with the rest of the world. There is a missional element here. This is one of our values. Love received, grace received is meant to be love passed on and grace passed on. He says, when we live in the humble glory of the cross like that, our love for each other will grow. This is why you can't force unity. You can't make that happen. It happens because the Holy Spirit is bringing it about in us. Furthermore, when we faithfully live in and express a gospel love like that, the people who come in contact with it will recognize it as rather unique. And so so much so that verse 23 tells us people might even be a little bit amazed by it. They'll start to see Jesus as real through it. His tangible love displayed through us now becomes a primary evidence for the people of the world and each other at times when we doubt, and we all have those moments, to really see and believe that God sent Jesus, that he's real. There's no shortage of God using this extraordinary Christian love at work to build the case of Jesus. We see it in the book of Acts. Under the major threat of persecution, the early churches at great great risk to themselves, they sacrifice what they have for each other. They're giving up stuff they need, which Paul will say here momentarily in our next talks, they're giving up what they need for the benefit of others who have greater need. God, God works through that. It's a sacrificial generosity rooted in the selfless glory of Christ's cross. A generosity that is not unique to the early church. You will seldom find it on a news story. It's usually the negative stuff that gets put up there. But you'll find it in a lot of places where Christianity has spread. It's almost always noted as exceptional. You can see it in very clear examples of the early church where they go to places of the world and even today places that people don't want to go to bring grace and truth and, and to care for the physical, spiritual, and emotional needs of people. And some of us don't even need all the extra biblical worldly examples. We don't need a history book to validate this because we've been on both the giving end. I know many of you personally, you live like this. And many of you have been on the receiving end of this type of generosity. And I'm always amazed when I talk to other Christians and they share with me how God has used his people to bless them in this area or how God is leading them to bless others in this area. So throughout history, Christ's otherworldly love has been able to do amazing things. 
Another important thing is it has been able to unite the hearts of incredibly diverse people. All over the globe, we have examples of Jesus bridging the gap between uh, people that would have not been in love with each other unless they had Jesus binding them together. And this is because the glory of the cross, it, it causes us to rethink traditional barriers of race, of custom, of class. In the way that we love Jesus, in the way that Jesus loves us, that goes much deeper than affinity. It goes much deeper than common hobby. We all come to Christ. Paul uses a very biblical analogy. He says in another part of Scripture, he says everybody has very diverse life stories. This is true for us. But he gives us the categories of his day. He says, yet we are no longer identified as a Jewish person or Greek or barbarian or a Scythian. He says you're no longer poor or educated or uneducated or whatever other designation used in our world to divide us. He says, for those in Jesus, you are now one in him. You have the greatest identity ever. You're under the banner of what it means to follow Christ. And that makes you one in a way that no affinity, hobby, custom, class, or race could make you. This was a point that I did not believe until I went to East Africa in 1999. The first time, it was the second time I was overseas, but I did some pretty amazing work with the Maasai tribe in in Tanzania. These are bush people, right? They live in a very primitive culture, mud huts. Um, They carry spears. They hunt lion. These are true primitive African tribes. And I became friends with the Maasai warrior, right, who uh, just like me at the time was in his mid-20s. He was uh, a fresh believer in Jesus like me. We had about a year and a half of following Jesus under our belt. And he was wrestling with this call to to be a pastor and a leader of, of God's church like me. It was like we were very different people at the same impasse in our faith. And he and I talked a lot while I was there. Me with my watch and him with his spear. Very different cultures, very different languages. I had to talk through two translators. Somebody took my English and translated it into Swahili, the national language of Africa. And then the state uh, language was Maasai. So what would happen is, is I'd say something and then two guys would translate it to him. And then like five minutes later, it would come back to me. And so we said a lot, but really not a lot because of the translation factor. But what was, what was fascinating to me was over the course of those weeks I was there, I was never around a person so different from me. I mean, he carried a spear and hunted lions, no joke. And I was wearing a Yankee hat and a ton of cologne. And remember, you know, remember, I'm an Italian kid from Brooklyn, and that's just what young Italian guys do. You wear a lot of cologne, you know? So I did. You could, I, I didn't even barely get back to American customs on the way home because I had a foreign odor on me that was so strong. We could not have been from different worlds, right? Yet different in every way, I had a commonality with him that is just indescribable. Why? My relational skills, his relational skills. No, that doesn't hurt. But the truth is that it is the cross. In between those translators, he's my brother now. And, I, and, 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 and he's my brother and I is his, I'm his because of what Jesus has done. It was like I knew the guy for decades. In fact, we traded. I, took, I, took, I actually have a short sword and I gave him my watch. Watches were a high note of society where he was at. And he never had a watch. So I gave him my watch and he gave me a called a SEMA. And I have it on my bookshelf to remind me of that. Now, listen, that's Jesus' otherworldly love. And it has a power to save when people see it. And it has a power to do something in you when you experience it. You know, when you choose to live in the selfless glory of the, of the cross like that, it means you're, you're dwelling in the true presence of God. And that is guaranteed to create spontaneous acts of love and unity, just like everything else in the Christian faith. Love and unity for God, they, they cannot be forced. They are attributes God puts into us. It is a grace given to us by God, a grace with an incredible responsibility connected to it. Once it's in us, we have to do something with it. 
So as we enter our response time, I want you to let this truth seep into your heart. Let the union of love, if you are in Jesus, that you share with Jesus, let it be the catalyst that produces a love for others in you unlike any other in this world. There is nobody unworthy of your love any longer because truly when we were most unworthy of Jesus's, he poured it out with his life. Let the selfless glory of the cross remind you of how much you matter to God. There's something you must do. There's something you must know. You matter to God. When you think of unity, it's not just how you relate to another person. Through Jesus, God says, you are now one in me and I am one in you. You are mine and I am yours. That is amazing. I think that deserves at least one more praise the Lord this morning. Can I get here? All right, thank you. Maybe even an amen if you know how to pronounce it properly up in the back. Okay, here we go. That's an amazing thought. Where, where your identity is, that's where it is. Let, you, let yourself find your life in Christ. It's, especially if you're here this morning and somebody has given you a lesser identity. If, they, if they're categorizing you in one of those ways we talked about earlier, to be in Jesus means you have the category that defines all category, his child. Ask yourself when it comes to living in and showing Jesus' love and unity to others, what is Jesus saying to you? And as you respond and reflect this morning, what is it that you're going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for an incredibly powerful, powerful passage, a passage that teaches us a lot about um, who we are with each other and how we behave and act towards each other, but it also teaches us an incredible amount of who you are and how you relate to us. And so I pray this morning as we talk about this, as we have sung about this, as we have connected with each other out in the hallway about this, and now as we move into a, a, just a time of response, that you would write this narrative on our hearts. May we be the kind of people who who are so bound up in your love that it, it truly does create an uncommon oneness with you, one forged on the cross between us and you and then forged at the foot of the cross between us and each other. May the unity of our love for you be the greatest evangelistic tool, God, the greatest tool we have to help others see your grace and your glory. And I pray that that is the story that follows the name of restoration for all of the days that God has us on this earth in this city. May our love for you be what is most noted and displayed in our love for others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've heard, you've heard a lot today. 